0: Listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock, I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're talking about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has been described as the worst security crisis since World War II. Are there similarities between the two?
1: I think that's actually a quite a good characterization. Um, certainly since the end of the Cold War, you know, during the Cold War we had big crises, um, like the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. But if you look at the European continent, I think that the reason why people are so stunned is this belief that warfare and invasions in this brutal way were a thing of the past. The Europeans are going to be this beacon of civilization, showing how the rest of the world can live at peace, and suddenly all that's been just scattered into the wind because uh, of Russia's behaviour. So I agree. It's certainly we're living through very historic times indeed.
0: Well, we've talked about strategic empathy as a foreign policy and whether Russia's security concerns have been ignored for decades. But what's the difference between having strategic empathy and someone like Neville Chamberlain, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, who is widely criticised as being an appeaser towards Hitler's Nazi Germany?
1: Yes, we have had some feedback from the uh, podcast that we did on strategic empathy. So just to refresh people's memories, it was an American article. So it's directed at Americans saying, look, we just need to try to get our heads into the heads of other people and not assume that everyone thinks like an American. And uh, for that, I also built on Robert McNamara, who was the U.S. Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War era and was haunted by the failure. He was seen in World War II as one of the whiz kids. He was this bright, one of the best and the brightest, as uh, has been called, uh, for the Kennedy administration. And yet they made a terrible mistake in Vietnam, and he was haunted by that mistake. And and towards the end of his life, he said, look, one of the problems we Americans have is that we could not put ourselves in the position of the Vietnamese who are fighting a nationalist struggle. They weren't necessarily communist, they were nationalists, and they didn't want people running their country for them. They wanted to be able to run their own country. And so this notion of strategic empathy has been revived by the Quincy Institute in Washington, D.C. as a way of encouraging people to try to look at at conflicts from another point of view, not just... American or British or Australian point of view. What is interesting um, with the Chamberlain example, so, and this is the, the complaint that we had with the earlier podcast, that it's very easy to get into um, the appeasement. So, just to refresh our memories, Neville Chamberlain was the British Prime Minister for the end of the 1930s through until 1940. And he was the one who negotiated. The agreements with Hitler, whereby Hitler just gained extra control over Europe. And so this is seen as appeasement. Now, my argument about appeasement, and this is why I don't get into historical arguments too much, because you go off on a tangent, which I'm happy to do. I love talking about history, (laughs) but we're really talking about Ukraine. And instead, we're going to be ending up talking about the Sudetenland. The, The British, for hundreds of years, have looked out onto the continent and seen it dominated by two powerful countries. And British policy has always been to side with the weaker country against the stronger one in the hope they will fight each other, wipe each other out, and that gives the opportunity for the British to go around collecting real estate as they did in, say, the Americas or Africa or in this corner of the globe. So in the 1930s, when Britain looked out onto Europe, it saw a continent divided by two brutal dictators. You had Stalin and you had Hitler. And so you really had to work out which of those two undesirable people you're going to be associated with. And the British made the decision to work with Hitler in the expectation that ultimately Hitler will attack Russia. And that's exactly what happened. So Chamberlain's policy was Machiavellian. It was deceitful, but it was effective. So I think it's got a lot more going for it than just this idea that you keep feeding territory to brutal dictators. So I think we have to be very careful when we start talking about appeasement and try to use that as a way of trying to understand what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, When we were talking about Ukraine a few weeks ago, I was trying to avert the crisis that we've now got. In other words, can we come to an arrangement whereby we won't see thousands of people killed in Ukraine. And who knows, we might end up with nuclear war. So we might be recording one of our last podcasts. It's been a pleasure working with you. That's a terrifying thought. Thanks, Keith. I'll see you in heaven. Um, So I was hoping to be able to avoid the crisis that we've now got and then come to some sort of diplomatic arrangement. So it's not a question of giving in to Putin. It's really coming to an arrangement, uh, which is what you'd expect from a political scientist. You always want to work out how you make deals. And so the tragedy now is that that opportunity to give Putin an off-ramp, as the Americans would say, uh, but that opportunity for the off-ramp was missed, and Putin has now gone ahead with this invasion.
0: But if we look at what sparked this, it has long been predicted by many experts that the expansion of NATO would provoke Russia, and that's exactly what we're now seeing play out in the Ukraine crisis. Putin thinks NATO reneged on a deal not to expand eastward, but is there actually a legal agreement there?
1: Not a legal agreement as such, which was the failure on the part of Gorbachev. He should have got all this in writing. But we do have documents from the meetings which show there was his clear understanding back towards the end of the Cold War, whereby it was clear that Soviet rule in East Germany was collapsing, as it was in the rest of its Soviet empire. And so there was a problem that under the World War II Peace Treaty, the British, Americans and French had the right to occupy West Germany and the Soviet Union had the right to keep troops in East Germany. This was also a way of making sure, remember it's a different world now, but this was back in the, the late 40s. The fear was the Germans would come back for a third time And so if we kept Allied forces in one Germany and Soviet forces in the other Germany, they would all keep an eye on the Germans and make sure they don't misbehave themselves. And, in fact, we were too effective because the Germans sort of got out of the business of being aggressive, spending high sums of money on defence, et cetera, and instead just improved the manufacturing of automobiles. So what has happened then is that we ended up with this World War II agreement. The Soviets still had the right to deploy troops in East Germany and so the quid pro quo was the Soviets would pull out of East Germany, enable East Germany to become united with West Germany. But the quid pro quo was that NATO agreed not to move east. And George Bush Sr., who negotiated this with Secretary of State Baker, he honoured that promise for the rest of his time in office. But then Bill Clinton, towards the end of his time in office, decided to ignore that informal arrangement. You're right, there's no actual treaty, but it was just an understanding that everybody had. And also, I think from a NATO point of view, every time you add extra members, you create extra liabilities for yourself. So it's best to keep a small, tight, well-organized alliance. You have enough problems within the alliance as it is. Uh, Every time you bring in another member, you're bringing in extra risks of disturbance. But nonetheless, Clinton and his successors decided to expand NATO eastwards, and this then fed into Russian paranoia. I I can't imagine NATO ever invading Russia, uh, but then I couldn't imagine Russia invading Ukraine. You never can tell in this world. Well, you just mentioned the word nuclear. It's been more than
0: 75 years since nuclear weapons were last used in warfare, but tensions have really escalated. We've got Putin putting Russia's nuclear forces on high alert and troops taking control of the territory around Ukraine's nuclear power plant. Do you think there is a real concern this conventional war could escalate to nuclear?
1: And that's exactly why Biden and the other NATO countries are not getting involved. Um, They they are certainly supplying equipment, but they're not supplying ground troops or or planes or whatever, precisely to avoid provoking Putin. Putin has clearly shown himself to be tottering on the edge of madness, I think. And so the great fear is that uh, we will end up with um, uh, Russia actually using the nuclear weapons that we know they have got. Putin uh, a few days ago said that he could not imagine a world without Russia, which suggests that if Russia is going to go down, he'll take the rest of us with him.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannik, and Keith, today we are talking about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Now, you mentioned Putin. An article from the Sufain Center called The Great Power Dynamics of the Russian Invasion of Ukraine describes Russian President Vladimir Putin as a revanchist ever since he rose to power in the late 90s and says now that's proving to be true.
1: Yeah, so what he's got his eye on, we think, is trying to rebuild the old Soviet empire, or perhaps more accurately, Russian empire. I don't think that he's um, a particular, uh, you know, communist. He's not an ideologue. Um, I think he's an opportunistic individual, and he, he doesn't have any personal ideology except that of wanting to remain in power, which he's managed to do for 22 years. What he wants to do is to reclaim as much of the old Russian territory as he can. So he did that with Crimea. Eight years ago, it's the first time since the time of Stalin that uh, Moscow has been able to increase the amount of land for which it is responsible. And I think he just wanted to go further, and Ukraine is the the obvious target, and NATO has given him an excuse for that operation. But the question is, where does he stop? Does he want also to invade Poland, Hungary, the countries that he used to have? Don't forget that Russia also used to own Alaska. Are they going to try to get Alaska back? So this is the problem that we've got, just trying to understand what's going on inside Putin's head. And it's worth bearing in mind that Putin is governing as an autocrat. So in the history of the the um, old Tsarist empire, you had an autocratic emperor who ruled by divine rule. Then when the communists came over, uh, took over, you had a period under Stalin of, again, one-person rule. So Stalin was a czarist, except that he said he was following the the views of Karl Marx. Following his death in 1953, um, his successors said we will need to distribute power in a politburo. They'd had that before, so it's got a if you like a cabinet, and this time the cabinet would really make decisions, including getting rid of Khrushchev. They all ganged up and got rid of him. Uh, what? What we've seen now is a movement away from that Politburo and contrasting viewpoints to we're back now to having a czar in charge. It was a disaster when we had the czar there. It was a disaster when we had Stalin there. And now we've got Putin. So if Russia is successful in
0: Ukraine, I mean, it depends on what you define as success, but uh, what kind of message would that send to countries like China and Iran who are keen to increase their influence in Asia and the Middle East.
1: Well, this is why it's become a really important test of Joe Biden. Biden knows that if he doesn't respond well to Ukraine, that might be giving a bit of a weak green light to the Chinese to take over Taiwan. On the other hand, if, as we're seeing today, remember this is um, being recorded just before going to air the following day, but if the invasion continues to go badly, then it's a warning to China that you can't score a quick victory, even if you've got a huge preponderance of forces, if you've got people on the ground who basically don't like you. (laughs) And that's the problem with Ukraine. A lot of those young Russian soldiers have been told they will be welcomed as liberators. They are shocked that they are not being welcomed as liberators. And there are reports that some of them are actually damaging their own petrol tanks so they can run out of petrol therefore not get involved in the fighting. So he's almost confronted with a, a semi-mutiny situation as people feel they they have been lied to.
0: There have been a lot of sanctions imposed on Russia by Western allies, including Australia, but how significant is Germany's decision to suspend the certification of Nord Stream 2 and what does that mean for Europe's reliance on Russian natural gas?
1: Well, this has been the transformation of Germany. Remember, we, we, we dealt with Nord Stream Gas, the pipeline, all oh, months ago in this series. And it was even then foreshadowed, even since the time of when Donald Trump was president, there were warnings about the risk of becoming too reliant upon the Soviet Union for energy. So the Soviet Union is a major supplier. It produces 17% of all the world's natural gas and 12% of all the world's oil or petrol, and it supplies 40% of the European Union's supply of natural gas. And Donald Trump as president was saying, look, you are becoming vulnerable to your reliance on Russia, and in particular this Nord Stream 2. So there's a Nord Stream 1, which runs from Russia into northern Germany and then is dispersed from there. And there is another Nord Stream pipeline, which has just been built but at the moment is not opened. Um, So Trump was saying, do not go ahead with that Nord Stream To pipeline. The problem is the Germans have made themselves very vulnerable on the energy issue. A decade ago, when we had the Fukushima nuclear tragedy in Japan, the Germans announced we're getting out of nuclear energy. So they're closing down their nuclear power plants. They're also closing down their coal mining. So the only coal mining that is still done is in East Germany, where you've got to give people some sort of employment. They could very easily import good quality coal from Australia. We have better quality coal and it'll be cheaper for them. But no, they don't want to have coal either. So they've put their reliance on this natural gas and they are reliant upon, I think, an unreliable supplier, namely Russia. So Germany is in a real mess. So that's one thing. They've been mugged by reality. And, of course, the second thing has been the announcement this week for this dramatic increase in military expenditure. Remember, it goes back to the end of World War II, the, the decision to make sure the Germans didn't create World War III. And the Allies were were too successful. The Germans said, we're not going to be wasting money on military expenditure. We're going to make better cars and better factories, et cetera. And so there were always complaints the Germans were not spending enough on defence. Not that they were spending too much, but they were spending too little. And that has now changed under the new German Chancellor. He had no choice given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he has had to ramp up that German military expenditure. So they are two major changes that we have seen to German policy in the last few days. It's why I say the Ukrainian invasion is so significant. So one, they've decided not to go ahead with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And two, they've decided to dramatically increase their military expenditure.
0: So when we look at the widespread condemnation of Putin's invasion, Is Russia at a real risk of becoming the new North Korea?
1: I think so, yes, because I think North Korea, of course, has isolated itself from the world. It doesn't want to have connections with the world. This time around with Russia, it is the world that is isolating Russia. Russia would like connections with the outside world, particularly rich Russians who want to live good lives in, say, London, uh, etc. As as we looked at uh, a few weeks ago with kleptocrats, you know, the the yes, London so. laundromat, you know, the money laundering that goes on in London, which the British turn a blind eye to. So what we're seeing now in, um, in Russia is that Russia is becoming more and more isolated. This is part of the sanctions regime that Biden and others have introduced. So Biden was trying to obviously stop the Nord Stream 2 project, which we've looked at and where he's been successful. And what he's also saying is that they want to shut Russia off from the international financial banking system, which they have largely done, except that the the Russians are still going to be able to trade with China. China will not work with the West on this matter, uh, but many of the bigger suppliers are. And Russia, I think, is just going to become more and more isolated. And yes, it'll become a bit like North Korea. So if you're a plutocrat, In Moscow, you're making lots of money by ripping off your fellow Russian citizens. Then you get in a private jet and you fly across Europe to live the high life in your London mansion. Well, quite net as we speak at the moment, your jet can't travel across Europe and your mansion might be confiscated by the British government. This is not good news if you're an oligarch in Russia at the moment, or if you're an oligarch already living in London, the British government may go after your assets. So it's going to be very interesting to see what we do with within the long term with Putin. For example, we will have the annual G20 conference, which I think this year is being hosted by Indonesia. Should Russia be invited to attend? Remember, we had the G20 in Australia uh, back in the year that they shot down that airliner over Ukraine, uh, which contained some Australian passengers, and we hosted that in Brisbane. In fact, I covered that for the media. And Putin was still able to attend that, but it may well be this time round, the decision will be made, no, you're going to be excluded. So you're, you're seeing Russia excluded from more and more events, not just Putin himself personally, but perhaps excluded from sporting events, et cetera. So yes, Russia could end up as a new North Korea.
0: And, I mean, the world is looking on in horror at what's unfolding in Ukraine, but with an autocrat like Putin calling the shots, are we likely to see any signs of resolution or do we have to accept that this is likely to be a
1: prolonged conflict? Um, I don't think it's... Well, I I have no idea now. You know, I was the person hoping that we could avoid the conflict entirely. We've now got this conflict in our hands. It could spin out into a nuclear war. It could result in Putin being overthrown. This is the biggest gamble in Putin's career in 22 years at the top. And he, every day, must be wondering where he goes to next. The invasion has not gone well for him. They're well behind schedule. The Ukrainians are putting up a, a better fight than he would have anticipated. And the international community is not going to allow him a fait accompli, as they did with Crimea. But this time around, people really do feel angry about what's going on in Ukraine, and it's all being televised.
0: Certainly, Keith, and we all watch on and hope for a peaceful resolution. Thank you. I look forward to the next episode of Global
1: Truths. Thank you.
0: That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.